to another episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that's just outside the norm. I'm Sean, and I will be the host for this discussion. In this episode, I will be continuing my series of presenting and highlighting serial killers from around the world. Specifically, in this episode, I will be talking about a pair of the most infamous and cold-hearted killers from jolly old England. Now, in the first part of this series, I discussed four serial killers from Europe, and I originally planned on moving to another location elsewhere in the world to make things different. However, after the first part, I had gotten several requests to cover a number of English serial killers, so I've decided for the second installment of this series to stick around Europe and talk about two of the most notorious murderers from England. Before we get started, I would once again want to warn people about the content of this episode. Though I will not get too graphic with the crimes these criminals committed, some people may still find the content quite disturbing. Also, if you haven't already heard the first part of this series, I would suggest you go back and listen to the first episode, focusing on European serial killers also. There's no real order to this series, but if you share my morbid curiosity with this subject, you will probably find the previous cases of killers pretty fascinating as well. With all that said, let's get right into it and start with our first English serial killer of the day. Harold Shipman, also known as Dr. Death and the Angel of Death, was a medical general practitioner in England and also the most prolific serial killer in recorded history. That's right, Harold Shipman is responsible for taking more lives than any other serial killer I will ever discuss in this series, and has a higher victim count than the four European serial killers I discuss in part one combined. With that said, Harold did not kill people in the usual sense of fellow infamous killers. He did not bludgeon them to death or kidnap and torture them, but instead used his position as a healthcare practitioner to quietly kill his very patients who trusted him with their lives. Though he would ultimately be convicted of 15 murders, investigations proved that he had a hand in 218 deaths while working as a doctor, and perhaps even dozens more than that. Harold Frederick Shipman was born in Nottingham, England. He was a middle child, one of four children born to a pair of devoutly religious working-class parents. Harold was especially fond of his mother Vera, who was reportedly as being quite domineering. It was from her that Harold first started to show an attitude of superiority, a trait that would leave him few friends during his adolescent years. The young man was devastated when Vera was diagnosed with lung cancer while he was still a teen. Instead of shying away from the situation, though, Harold stuck by his mother's side and helped oversee her care as her condition worsened. It was during this time that Harold would watch with fascination as a local doctor took away her pain with doses of morphine when he came for house calls, apparently an obsession that would manifest itself later in his career with a dark turn. Unfortunately for Harold, Vera finally died from the disease when he was 17, after he had been forced to watch her body slowly deteriorate. Many believe having to go through this during his formative years had a huge impact on the actions he would later perform, and directly affect what would become his modus operandi. Several years later, at the age of 19, Harold would marry a woman named Primrose May and start his own family. Despite being married, Harold was still mostly a loner throughout his young adult life. Following his desire to become a doctor, he graduated from the Leeds School of Medicine in 1970. After doing some work at an infirmary, Harold would land his first position as a general practitioner in West Yorkshire. 
Though initially thriving in his new role as a family doctor, Harold's work began to suffer when he claimed that he was experiencing blackouts. He told his seniors that he had epilepsy. Soon, though, it was discovered this act was all a lie, and instead of having a medical condition, Harold had become addicted to the painkiller pethidine and was caught forging prescriptions for himself. This would not be the last time that he would not only concoct a lie to persuade those around him, but to also falsify medical records. After being forced to leave his practice, he entered a drug rehab program and received a small fine. Through the next decade, he would continue his work, even starting his own surgery in 1993. He was known as a hard-working doctor, though he had also a bit of a reputation for being arrogant and short with his junior staff. As far as the community was concerned as a whole, Harold was a fine doctor with a good reputation, earning himself the respect of the locals. Little did anyone know that during this time, Harold was hiding a terrible secret. Dr. Shipman was carrying out his perverse crime for years undetected. But in the late 1990s, some were starting to take note of a disturbing trend regarding his patients. A local undertaker started to become alarmed when he noticed that Dr. Shipman's patients seemed to be dying at an unusually large rate compared to others in the area. Also, he noticed a trend where nearly all of his victims died in similar situations, fully clothed and appeared to be sitting upright or reclining slightly. One of Harold's colleagues also was starting to notice a pattern regarding his patients. The coroner's office was now on alert and contacted the police, asking them to perform a covert investigation into Harold. Unfortunately for all, this investigation was handled very poorly by inexperienced detectives. The general medical counsel was never contacted, nor did they even check Harold's previous criminal record. During this time, three more of Dr. Shipman's patients died under suspicious circumstances. Finally, though, a more competent investigation was launched, and this one yielded some disturbing results. The detectives discovered that Shipman had been altering medical records of his patients in order to fall in line with their sudden deaths. A number of his patients had been pretty healthy, but according to their forged records, had been suffering from numerous health conditions which led to their untimely death. Harold's unusual reign of death would be brought to an end, also in pack, due to one of his victim's daughters. Kathleen Grundy, who was by most accounts to be pretty active and in good shape for her late age, was suddenly found dead at her home after being visited by Dr. Shipman earlier that day. Despite dying out of the blue, Shipman informed Kathleen's daughter Angela that an autopsy would not be required and that she had simply died of old age. Personally, I think any doctor who is content with simply signing old age on a death certificate without conducting any tests should have raised some red flags. But unfortunately, this wasn't Harold's first time by far attempting this type of trickery. This time, though, Harold's superior attitude or complacentness with his crimes after this long perhaps pushed him too far. Kathleen's daughter Angela was alarmed when she found that apparently her mother had recently made a new will, in which Harold Shipman, not her, would receive much of her estate. Unbeknownst to Harold, though, Angela Woodruff happened to be a lawyer and had handled her mother's affair while she was still alive. Convinced this new will was a complete forgery, Angela went to the police and gave them all the evidence and clues that she had thought herself. After a very quick investigation, the head detective came to the same conclusion about the whole affair. By command of the local police, Angela's mother Kathleen was exhumed for testing. A post-mortem revealed what would ultimately be Harold's downfall revealing that she had died from a large overdose of diamorphine, 
or medical heroin given to her several hours before her death, coinciding exactly with Dr. Shipman's visit that day. With this evidence, the police were able to launch a raid on Harold's residence, and they discovered enough to finally pinpoint the man behind so many mysterious deaths. Falsified medical records, collection of old women's jewelry, and even an old typewriter used to print wills was found in his possession. Even as the police were confident in fingering Harold for Kathleen's murder, the prior reports of his odd pattern of patient death had them alarmed. Further investigations were put in some of his other deceased patients. However, Harold had been quite clever in his tactics. He had urged the majority of the families of his victims to cremate their lost loved ones and that no further autopsies or testings were required. Harold would also have forged medical records to back up his claims to any family members that had not quite been convinced with the sudden death of the patient. For all his feelings of superiority, though, Harold was not the perfect criminal that he probably thought he was. Every time he altered medical records from his office's computers, electronic timestamping was done with each edit, throwing up easy-to-find red flags for the police to follow. After concluding that a number of the exhumed bodies were found to be killed by diamorphine overdoses also, the police charged Harold Shipman with 15 counts of murder and a count of forgery. The trial was pretty one-sided against Harold. Any attempt of at the defense to suggest he was acting compassionately was immediately countered. The fact that the majority of his victims were not only suffering from no terminal illness, but most of them were in perfectly fine health for their age. It is believed that Harold's superiority complex led him feeling all-powerful knowing he had complete control over which of his patients would live or die. In true form of a psychopath, Harold showed no compassion towards any of his victims. It was brought to life that he almost never even attempted to revive or resuscitate any of his victims who were in the process of dying. He would also falsely prescribe morphine to those who didn't need it, and greatly over-prescribe those who actually did to achieve the result he craved for, an overdose. Also, in a disturbing act he would put on several times, Harold would pretend to call for emergency services when alarmed by relatives that their loved ones were dying. After he pronounced them dead, he would say his condolences to the family and make another call, this time to cancel any incoming help. Phone records showed, though, that while pulling this stunt several times in front of relatives, no actual phone calls were placed. Harold was just acting it out the whole time. Even during his trial, no one on the jury could find any humanity in this man, as Shipman's arrogance and indifferent attitude just proved his mental state clearly. At the conclusion of this trial, the judge gave Harold 15 life sentences with no possibility of parole. Unfortunately for the families of his victims, the victory of his trial was short-lived as he would never actually carry out his full sentence. Harold Shipman would end up dying on January 14, 2004, the day before his 58th birthday. He was discovered in his cell at Wakefield Prison, his cold body hanging from a makeshift noose from his bedsheets that were tied to his window bars. Apparently, he was unable to face his crimes and the consequences of his actions and took the coward's way out. While many in the country celebrated and even made jokes about his undignified suicide, dozens of family members of his victims felt cheated that they never received the justice for his actions. Harold Shipman would have quite the legacy after his death. Due to heinous crimes of using his position to prey on vulnerable patients, the medical field of England changed several practices in what is now known as the Shipman Effect. In the immediate aftermath of his death and the intensive investigations going on at the time, many doctors, especially those who worked in similar situations as Shipman, 
were unwilling to take as many risks, such as prescribing large amounts of pain relievers in order to prevent any patient deaths that could garner unwanted attention. Also, there was a trend away from single-doctor practices that were popular during Harold's time, and moving more towards having multiple doctors at the same facility. This would ensure that there were more safeguards against the type of abuse from happening again from a solitary, psychopathic individual. Harold Shipman will be remembered as one of the most unique cases of a serial killer. It really is so bizarre how his mind twisted the sight of his mother being treated with morphine when he was a teen. Somehow her slow death coupled with the home calls from her doctor stuck with him for decades and built dark, violent urges inside himself that he had to carry out. Besides the obvious reason of the ridiculous body count of at least 215 people attributed to his name, the fact that he was able to operate undetected for so long and use his power as a doctor to gain his victims' trust before killing them makes Harold Shipman one of the strangest and disturbing serial murder cases I've researched so far. The next case I will be looking into this episode is that of Mary Ann Cotton. Mary Ann Cotton is the first female serial killer covered in this series so far. Mary was a poisoner of men and children, suspecting of killing three husbands, a lover, her own mother, and possibly around a dozen children, most of them being hers. She was a killer of opportunity, getting rid of her multiple husbands to collect their insurance policies, and getting rid of any children whenever they inconvenienced her. Mary herself was born in October of 1832 in what is now the city of Sunderland. Though not too much is known about her young life, it is reported that Mary was not the most sociable of children, having trouble making friends. Her dad was known as a strictly religious man and a fierce disciplinarian. When Mary was still a little kid, her father unfortunately died in a mining accident, allowing her mother to marry a new man named George Stout. Again, there aren't many details, but what is known is that she was not particularly fond of this new man as her father figure. In fact, most reports are that she loathed him. It is not known if her resentment towards him is just not liking the man who replaced her dad, or if there is a darker element to it. It is possible that her new stepfather could have abused her in some way, and this trauma at an early age, coupled with the fact that she was mostly isolated from her peers, could have started her down a road in which she would look to target men later in life. Mary Ann's weapon of choice was arsenic, a toxic compound which, when ingested by humans, causes severe gastric pain and deteriorating condition until the person quickly dies. She would use this poison time and time again, whenever it suited her. It is believed that she did not use this toxin until her first marriage, which occurred when she was 20 years old. Mary had grown fond of a man named William Mowbray, who was a coal miner like her father. They moved to Devon, England, and Mary would soon start to grow a large family. Over the next couple years, she would give birth to five children. Disturbingly low, four of her new children died of what was thought at the time to be gastric fever or typhoid fever. However, it is now known that Mary, in fact, most likely killed off her children. We do not know specifically why, but it is generally believed that she thought kids inconvenienced her with the amount of work and attention they needed, and most likely she just plain didn't like children much at all. Sometime later, the couple moved, and William became a foreman at another mine. There, Mary would give birth to three more children, children who had all died not long after birth. Sometime after this series of multiple dead children, William Mowbray himself would have failing health conditions. In January 1865, William would die of a painful intestinal disorder. 
Mary Ann would receive the payout of William's life insurance, enough money for her to live on for several months afterwards. Once again, Mary would move soon after her husband's death, a trend that would continue for quite some time. It is likely that moving to different parts of England helped her keep out of people's suspicions. Anyways, now living in Seaham Harbor, she would strike up a fling with a Joseph Natross. Joseph, however, was actually engaged to someone else at the time, so the relationship did not advance any further than that. This would not be the last time Joseph would factor into the story, however, as he would have a larger part later on in Mary's life. At this time, Mary's three-year-old daughter died, perhaps a victim of Mary's frustration and not being able to find another suitable husband. Just to recap, that is now eight children that have all died under Mary's care of the same ailment, leaving her with only one living kid left. Unfortunately, no one either noticed or cared enough to look into her case further, and Mary would once again move, finding work at an infirmary. It is thought that it was at this hospital that Mary stole a good amount of arsenic that she would use for years to come. Luckily for her last remaining daughter, Isabella, Mary sent her last child to live with her mother, fortunately sparing Isabella at the time and allowing her to live a bit longer than she would have if she had stayed with Mary. Though Mary was unsuccessful in convincing Joseph Natross to leave his fiancée for her, things would soon work out for Mary after she met a man at her infirmary. George Ward, who was one of her patients for a time, got along quite well with this nice child-murdering nurse, and the two got married in 1865, just six months after the death of her first husband. Things didn't quite work out for poor George, though, as just two months later he would be found dead of intestinal problems. This death did not come as too much of a surprise, though, since George had been in ill health for quite some time. However, his personal physician believed that the man was in danger of dying so soon and was taken by surprise at his death. Regardless, Mary played up the part of the poor widow and for the second time collected a nice sum of money from her deceased husband's insurance. Next, Mary would lay low for the better part of a year, living off the money she had collected off her two dead husbands. Sometime later, though, she was once again seeking work and became a housekeeper in 1866 to a man named James Robinson. Robinson himself was a recent widower, although he had actually felt a loss at the death of his loved one. Just a month later, James's child died unexpectedly and suddenly from gastric fever, leaving James an emotional wreck. Mary was there for him, just as she had planned, and spent some time comforting and consoling the grieving man. James fell right into her plan, and just a short time after being hired as a housekeeper, she was pregnant with his child and plans were set in motion for the two to be married. However, right at this time, Mary's own mother pleaded with her to help, as she had recently become quite ill. Soon after Mary arrived, her mother was actually starting to recover, but things took a quick turn when Mary's mom started to complain of intense stomach pain and would end up dying just a little over a week after Mary had shown up. Now once again stuck, caring for her last remaining daughter, Isabella, Mary was forced to bring her back to her new man, James. Unfortunately for the little girl, and I'm sure all you listeners by now know what is about to happen, Isabella soon developed intense stomach pain. By now, Mary was literally killing every single person who had the slightest burden on her, and anyone who was getting in the way of her and her new soon-to-be husband. Not only was Isabella's health quickly declining, but just a few days after Mary had returned to the Robinson household, two other children belonging to James started to develop similar symptoms. Isabella and the other two children would end up dying in a span of just two weeks. 
At this time, James Robinson had lost nearly everyone he loved, with only Mary there as a companion. The heartbroken man went through with the marriage, and soon after the wedding, the baby Mary had been caring for the majority of their relationship was born. Not surprisingly, the poor baby lived no more than half a year before suddenly dying. It was at this point that James's relationship with Mary began to strain. He was growing suspicious and frustrated at her continued insistence that he get a life insurance policy with her as the benefactor. As James started to snoop around Mary's life, he discovered that she had secretly been stealing money from him while also accruing large debts. James had finally had enough, and he kicked Mary out while retaining custody of his last son, a move that more than likely saved the lives of both of them in the process. For the first time in her career as a cold-blooded killer, things had not quite gone to plan for Mary. Instead of killing a third husband and collecting money, she found herself kicked out of the house with no income. Desperate for help, she turned to a friend, Margaret Cotton, for a place to stay. Margaret obliged and introduced Mary to her brother Frederick, again a recent widower who had lost two children himself. No doubt Mary practically jumped at the chance to meet up with Fred, and the two started to get along. Of course, things never turn out quite well for the loved ones of Mary's manly interest, and by now it should come as a surprise to no one that Fred's sister and Mary's friend Margaret suddenly died from a painful stomach ailment. No doubt just another plan for Mary to help expedite the relationship with Frederick. Mary once again played the supporting shoulder for Fred to cry on and help comfort him, and once again she found herself not only married to her fourth man, but pregnant with his child as well. Things actually went well for a time, as Mary managed to go almost a year without finding the need to poison any more of her family members. Of course, Mary was never able to stay content for long, and soon she found her former lover Joseph Natross, the one man who had escaped her plans, would once again walk into her life. Finding her ex-lover now unmarried, she quickly struck up a relationship with him yet again. In typical fashion, soon thereafter, Mary poisoned her fourth husband, Fred Cotton, collecting his life insurance money and moving on to her next conquest. For some reason, Mary and Joseph Natross did not marry, but Mary did give Joseph a place to live. Instead, in this time, she was with another man named Richard that Mary grew close to. Not surprisingly, she would soon become pregnant for the twelfth time. Whatever happened between Richard and Mary, I could not find out. But sometime after, Mary went on a killing frenzy, poisoning the son she had with her third husband, Frederick, as well as a new infant. Perhaps she was frustrated at not being able to find another husband and took it out on her unsuspecting kids. Even Joseph Natross, Mary's longtime on and off again lover, would himself become the last adult victim of Mary, dying of gastric fever in March 1872. Perhaps Joseph's undoing was finally bending to Mary's will and naming her in his life insurance policy. Apparently Joseph's affection was worth less to Mary than the 30 pounds his life was worth. After all this time, Mary would finally have her downfall soon thereafter. After publicly announcing to others that her last surviving child, Charles Cotton, was becoming a burden, and asking around for ways to dump him off on others, she said to a minor government official named Thomas Riley that, I could have married again but for this child. I won't be troubled long. He'll luckily go like all the rest of the Cottons. Sure enough, less than a week after these claims, Charles Cotton would pass away from gastric fever like everyone else around Mary. This aroused suspicions in the official Thomas Riley, and when Mary immediately tried to collect insurance instead of grieving or finding help for the poor boy, an investigation was launched on his inquest. 
Investigators quickly connected the morbid dots to Mary's story, finding out that she had been moving all around England and leaving a trail of bodies behind her. Mary would be arrested for the murders of three husbands, a lover, her own mother, a friend, and over a dozen children. Mary's trial went quickly, as testing proved that arsenic had been used to kill the boy Charles. She was sentenced to be executed, and in March of 1873, she was hanged. It was noted that her neck had not snapped during her botched execution, the common way a person would die in this method, but instead was slowly strangled by the rope as she lay suspended above the ground. Mary was slowly choked to death over a long, grueling three minutes. It is thought that the executioner had rigged the noose to allow for this slow death, though absolutely no one cared or was upset enough by the fact to look into the situation further. Her story and death became the subject of a popular children's rhyme going, Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten. She lies in her bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, sing, oh what can I sing? Mary Ann Cotton is tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air, selling black puddings a penny up here. Mary Ann Cotton is known as Britain's first female serial killer and remains one of the most prolific murderers in modern English history. It is believed that she most definitely killed 15 people, but it is highly suspected that she murdered 21 people in total in her life. Like Dr. Shipman, Mary Ann gives a slightly different view of serial killers than most people are familiar with. Female serial killers are far more rare than their male counterparts. Actually, I would be surprised if the average person can even name a female serial murderer. Also, Mary was not an overly violent killer, instead preferring to work behind the scenes, administering poison to her family members, much in the same way that Harold Shipman was doing to his patients. Also, Mary is a special case because she never really had a specific target, like a large number of killers. Even Dr. Shipman mostly targeted old, lonely women patients. It also didn't seem that Mary had some undeniable craving or urge to kill, instead electing to wait to the right opportunity. She would marry a man and be patient, waiting for them to put her name in their insurance policy before killing them off, which would put Mary in the Black Widow category of female killers. However, this is only part of her crimes, as she was also willing to kill off her own mother, friends, and even children, basically anyone who happened to get in her way or annoyed her at the time. This truly shows what a psychopath she was, having absolutely no quarrels with killing anyone close to her. All of her sadistic crimes make Mary Ann Cotton one of the most cruel and disturbing of all the English serial killers. And now that wraps up the end of this episode on English serial killers and concluding the second part of this series. For my next installment, I will finally be leaving the European area and focusing on serial murders in another region of the world. I haven't quite yet made up my mind where I want to look at next, so if any of you listeners have any idea as to where you would like me to focus whether it's a country or an overall region, or even if you have a specific killer in mind, please let me know. You can send feedback or suggestions at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. Also now, we are looking to put together our next listener-based content episode focusing on local legends and myths. So for all of our fans located all around the world, if you have any interesting folklore or urban legends where you live, please let us know and we will share your story in our future episode. You can visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can listen to, comment, and download all of our episodes. If you would like to follow us on social media, we have a Facebook page and Twitter. Finally, we ask if you would like to help us out and you are listening to us on iTunes and enjoy the show, 
please take the time to leave a rating and a review. It means a lot to us to be able to read your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast, allowing us to reach more listeners. With all that said, until the next time at Strange Matters Podcast, take it easy, everyone.